Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where you will learn about medical journeys, kinder doctors, and resilient patients. My first guest is Dr. Adam Stern. He is the author of Dispatches from a Psychiatrist in Training. Adam Stern, MD, is a psychiatrist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He has written extensively about his experience as a physician, including in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, the New England Journal of Medicine, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and the American Journal of Psychiatry. He lives with his family near Boston, which is broiling today, and he's back in the house to talk about connection. Hi, Adam. Thanks for coming back on the show. Hi, I'm so happy to be back with you today. Me too. You know, you and I were talking about ways to continue the conversation regarding your book, Committed Dispatches from a Psychiatrist in Training, but really about the state of healthcare in America and really the state of the human side, you know, the relationships, the bedside manner and connection or lack thereof. Yeah, that is such a rich topic that we could talk about all day, I think, because, you know, on, on the one end, the training that you get as you become a, a medical practitioner, a doctor, an MD, whatever it might be, is all about facts and, and, and knowledge. And there's a lot of it. You know, there's definitely a, a good amount to learn. You could spend hours and hours and hours over weeks and years and, and even decades never uh, finishing learning. You know, there's a, a saying around here about people being lifelong learners, and that's a that's a true thing. But part of the value of, not just part of it, but a major part, an important essential part of the value of a clinical relationship is the actual relationship part of that. So is the human connection between the doctor, uh, the medical uh, practitioner, and the patient. Um, without that connection, really so much of healthcare just becomes dehumanized, inhumanized, yeah. um, and and people get worse. They fe they feel worse. They probably get worse outcomes because of it. I'm going to speak now as a patient. When when I as a patient feel as though I'm being heard by the doctor, already I start to feel good. Yeah, that's the that's the very first step is communicating in some way to the patient that you hear what they're saying. Even, I'm just going to just be a little concrete for a second and say that, you know, in the medical notes that, that we all write for every encounter that we have, the very first little part of the note is called the chief complaint. 
And even that phrasing is wrong <laughs> when you think about it. When yeah. you think about what we're doing here, it's not, we're not listening to complaints, right? We're trying to uh, connect with someone to help them um, improve their life. That's what, what it's all about. So uh, at, at a more broad level, you know, being heard, feeling heard is step number one, uh, because without that, you know, the doctor can prescribe an answer for something and it might be an answer to the wrong question, you know? Uh, and so I think you're hundred percent right on that. And how do you, as a professor who is teaching young doctors how to be the best professionals they can be, how do you teach this software? You know, because it's the softer side of medicine, right? It's not right. necessarily in a textbook. And in their young lives, based upon where they're at in time, you know, 20s, mid to late 20s, how do you... How do you get them to get it? The most important lessons that I try to impart are to meet the patient where they are, both physically and emotionally and cognitively. And so physically, literally, when you go into a room, if you've been a patient, and I have, where you're laying down in the bed and you're uncomfortable as it is because of whatever reason you're in the hospital and you look up and there's sort of like a, a swarm of doctors looking at you like you're a specimen, you know, that kind of thing is is terrible, right? So if at all possible, um, especially in psychiatry, but really, frankly, across the board, getting down at, at the at eye level, you know, with, with the patient and talking, trying to connect with them at literally the same level, physical level that they're at is just like step number one. If you're able to pull over a chair and sit with them, that's so much better than it is if you are hovering over them, right? <laughs> and then taking that to sort of like the emotional level. So if someone is in distress, you want to meet that distress with calm, right? Uh, the worst thing that you want to do in an emergency situation or a, sort of an urgent, you know, distressing situation is continue to contribute stress to that environment. And so you reflect calm back. Uh, if someone is calm, you also re reflect calm back. It is, there's very little room in medicine for panic. Um, but uh, so that's what I mean by meeting people emotionally uh, and at an appropriate way. And then, you know, cognitively. So sometimes you might be speaking with someone who is, uh, let's say they have advanced Alzheimer's dementia and they can't uh, re remember certain details of their own lives or what brings them in. Um, you know, you talk at, at a level that they can connect with, right? So you speak to them uh, respectfully. You, you tell them why they're there, but you don't expect more from them than, than they can offer. You don't expect less from them than they can offer, right? You treat them as you would want to be treated in the same circumstances. Let and so I think those those three areas are ways that all three of them, in some in, to some degree, it's like meeting the patient where they are and where they need you to meet them. In psychiatry, when you're dealing with a whole host of psychiatric conditions and diagnoses, you may be presented with a patient who is schizophrenic and who is hearing and seeing things. And how do you meet that patient with the same dignity that you describe in these other ways? That is a great question. Uh, and it's a, it's a difficult one to answer in the sense that on the whole, patients that deal with what we would refer to as uh, severe mental illness, things like severe schizophrenia, psychosis, bipolar disorder featuring mania, things that are requiring hospitalizations quite often. On the one hand, those are human beings that experience a range of emotions very similar to anyone else. 
and deserve the dignity that everyone else does. And then on the other hand, the work involves sometimes um, doing things that you wouldn't want to do for someone, like uh, having them stay on a locked psychiatry unit, for example, or um, you know, uh, uh, discussing things. You know, if someone's experienced, uh, you mentioned schizophrenia in particular, and in that condition, a lot of people will experience not only auditory hallucinations, you know, hearing voices, but they'll become paranoid or or even delusional. They'll have specific fixed delusions that are very difficult uh, to interact around, right? And so one of the one of the lessons that I learned was that when someone presents with, let's say, a delusion, let's say, I'm just going to uh, use a very common one, uh, which is a, a fear, a paranoid fear that someone's out to get them or harm them or poison them or something like that. It's not very useful to, even though everyone, including the patient's family, including everyone around them, might say, oh, that, that situation is not the way the patient describes it. Uh, that person's actually quite loving and caring and they're not trying to poison this patient. Um, whatever it might be, you, you don't try to tell the patient, no, you're wrong. Just listen to everyone else. See, everyone's saying that you're wrong. Uh, what you do is you align with the patient's distress and you ask them, oh my gosh, what must it be like to feel like so-and-so is out to harm you, you know, and, and just doing that kind of thing opens up an avenue for them to tell you about their experience. And that's something you can relate to. Anyone can relate to feeling worried and scared. Um, and so yeah. with those kinds of serious mental illnesses, a lot of the times that's, that's a very uh, important technique is to figure out some path where you can both be uh, looking at the distress together as opposed to trying to push and pull, uh, pull the person back toward, you know, uh, a world without that uh, uh, symptom. And I'm wondering, as you're speaking about the storytelling, right, to, to want to learn more, like, I have worked on cases where this has happened. And I'm always curious, like, well, tell me more about this. This is interesting. I'm, I'm curious to learn more about what you're seeing or you're hearing. Maybe it's not a good approach, but it no, it's back. great. It Tell goes... me more is one of my favorite yeah. phrases. It it almost sounds so obvious, but it's like the the one of the best ways to actually connect with someone is to listen to them. And there's no better way than to give them an open-ended opportunity to talk. You know, you mentioned something else about how do you train people to connect at a human level. And one of the very basic ways is to not interrupt them, right? I'm not doing a great job of that during this interview, but- We both uh, are in, not doing a great job. It's okay though. <laughs> We're friends. <laughs> with, with, with patients, you know, there's some statistic out there that the average- doctor-patient interaction, the doctor interrupts the patient within 18 seconds. And that's terrible. That's pitiful. You know, we, we have to do better than that. And I find that if you leave the room to let the patient speak and tell you what's going on, you'll get most of the information about what's important to the patient. And that's what should be important to you. And then you can fill in the rest of the history as you need to, and, you know, get the rest of the details you need to. So circling way back, like, Tell me more is such an important phrase or even approach, you know, however you want to say it. I totally agree with you. Yeah. I mean, and when we talk about this, uh, the story, our stories as, as human beings and the last year and a half, two years of the world's story, we're seeing a picture of a lot of mental health challenges surfacing. And I'm wondering how the pandemic has shaped 
or changed the way you approach teaching? That's an interesting question because there have been some pluses and some minuses around the pandemic and how it's you know really gave, given us a a big shove toward digital healthcare, doing things virtually, right? Not every visit has to be a drive yeah. into the city and a $20 parking fee and, you know, the whole thing about going and waiting in the waiting room and then the next waiting room and then finally the doctor <laughs> comes in or whatever it might be. So there are pluses that have come out of the pandemic from a logistical standpoint that now we're more able to do virtual visits and we're taking advantage of the technology we have. All of that uh, at the same time, we have to realize we're, we are giving something up in that. And that's being able to be in a room with someone and 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 feel the general sense of how they are, how they seem, reading body language, looking at them and not seeing your own face in the little corner of the screen, you know, uh, drawing, drawing a little <laughs> part of your attention back to yourself, you know, um, your own self-consciousness I find, uh, happens sometimes when, when I'm in with a virtual visit. So the, uh, you know, the world has changed for sure. I mean, uh, that's an understatement of the century, but in healthcare too, you know, we, we want to find ways to embrace the convenience and, and, um, uh, the usefulness of technology without losing that actual human touch. Yeah. But going yeah. back to how the doctors are educated to be able to forge those connections in a, a virtual world, I think that that could be a challenge for a young doctor. Yeah. No, I think, I think you're right about that. There's a big push right now that I feel in the department where I work, for example, there's a, there's a push to, to think, how can we reintegrate? You know, how can we get people back in where they're getting the full experience of medical education? Right. Because it's, it is true that watching a visit happen on a screen where two, you know, uh, uh, your mentor and your, and a patient are having a conversation and you're sort of observing, that's a, a less, complete experience than being in the room and then they're therefore having more of an opportunity to engage, you know? So I think that's one of the biggest challenges in, in the learning by doing kind of part of medicine. And then there are certain things where there is no substitute. It's, you know, show up at the ER and you're going to uh, learn by doing in the yeah. ER. That kind of thing though, the pandemic has, has provided other challenges because now you're you're masked up, you're gowned up, you're goggled up. You know, people are walking around with pictures of themselves on their chests, you know, to show who they who they are behind all of the uh, the gowning and the gloving and everything. So I don't know what the future looks like. I know it's not going to be what it was two years ago, and it's not going to be what it was last year. It's somewhere in between or hopefully something better, I hope. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we will continue the conversation with Dr. Adam Stern. We're talking about his book, Committed, Dispatches from a Psychiatrist in Training. To learn more about Adam and his work and his huge, huge heart, please visit adamsternmd.com, on Twitter at Adam Philip Stern, and on Instagram, Adam Stern MD. We'll be right back, and that is a guarantee. Before we take that pause, let's talk about what it really takes to elevate your business. Each new hire is a high-stakes wager for entrepreneurs like you and me. Teamwork is the number one key, and you need to access the best qualified talent to build that team and to achieve your business goals. That's why you've got to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find and connect with the right people faster and for free. 
Right now, our team is actively seeking advisory board members for a startup venture, and LinkedIn Jobs is my resource to find the right qualified candidates. Posting a free job post on LinkedIn Jobs is a snap. I did it from the LinkedIn app on my phone in a couple of minutes. Then add your job and the purple hashtag hiring frame to your own LinkedIn profile to spread the word that you're hiring. LinkedIn is the go-to resource for team talent, and that's why small businesses everywhere rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering high-quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the qualified candidates you want to talk to faster. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash HH. That's linkedin.com slash HH to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Now let's take that break and we'll be right back. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit harvestinghappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. And we're back, continuing the conversation with Dr. Adam Stern about medical journeys, kinder doctors, and resilient patients. Let's get back to it. I wanted to ask you about the development of young residents because they're in school for so long and how that impacts their delivery of healthcare. Right. And I think what you're getting at also is this idea that if you put someone in school for, you know, decades straight and then they enter adulthood with this newfound responsibility, that that can be a a unique kind of developmental stunting almost. I write about this a bit in the book that most young doctors, most trainees, I used to think about my own life in four-year increments for a long time, (laughs) Uh, starting in high school and then college. Those four years, among other things, was it was like, all right, how do I get into medical school? I have to take these courses, do these things, okay. Then in medical school, it's another four years, and you say, okay, these four years, I'll be living in this city. And then at, at the end of it, a computer algorithm will sort of spit out where I'm going to do my training years. And then I'll be living in that city for four years uh, again, you know. And finally, at the end of my psychiatry residency, it was like, oh, okay, um, I'm 30 years old. uh, And I'm just for the first time in my life uh, entering a point where I like the world is open, you know, like my my path wasn't prescribed. It wasn't predefined. Um, And so that idea at any point along the way, but especially when you are talking about med students in their early 20s or residents in their late 20s, these are people who otherwise would have been out in the world living their lives in a different way, you know, meeting people, meeting people from all different fields, uh, maybe even socializing at bars or at clubs or, uh, you know, at, at house parties, dinner parties, whatever it might be. But you take these people at this particular era of of young adulthood, and you make them stay in the in the hospital with the artificial lights and the cafeteria food, for for up to eighty hours a week at times during their early training, and it leads to this strange place where I think that a lot of young doctors don't quite know how to be normal young human beings, um, and and. Not everyone. Some, some, some of them are better than others. Um, some of us. Um, but it's definitely something that I've noticed that I think is fascinating. 
And it's true, I believe, that a lot of doctors marry other doctors because I guess who else are you going to relate to? <laughs> you know? Yeah, you're, you're totally right. There's, there is a, there's a shared language. There's a shared understanding. Like this is the gig. This is the job. When the pager goes off in the middle of the night, that's how it is. And you answer the page, you know? Uh, but, but like you're saying also, when you're in some of those um, years of where a lot of people are out dating, uh, mingling in various ways in different environments, you take, the medical trainees and and you really cram them all together, right? Yeah. And almost by definition, a lot of them uh, have similar interests, and um, um, you know, there's a lack of time and energy to explore the greater world. And so, I do think, uh, for various reasons, it's a lot of doctors do end up together. And you know, going back to what you were saying about being thirty and realizing that there's a big world out there, and for the first time, I can put myself in your shoes, realizing, well, you know, I could pretty much live wherever I want. You know, I could figure this out and go anywhere and do my craft. Right. I remember, you know, I grew up in a suburb of New York and I still have have most of my own family in New York. And I remember when I was interviewing at various places, I would say, and I said this to the, um, the head of the department that interviewed me at the Harvard Longwood program where I trained, I said, do people come here and then like go back to New York or some other place? Like, is that a thing that people do or, or do you end <laughs> up sort of uh, staying here forever? And he said, oh, of course people go back to New York, you know, people all the time. And it's, he's right. It does happen all the time. But what I wasn't banking on was I would meet, you know, the love of my life in the training and I would marry her and we would be off kilter. She left the program after three years to pursue child and adolescent psychiatry uh, and I stayed on for the fourth year. And so then uh, we were leapfrogging each other and, and taking sort of positions uh, at different institutions. And we, we've settled right here in Boston all these years later, for sure. Wow. So you had an asynchronous courtship? <laughs> exactly. That's You are right on there, for sure. So let's talk about romance. Because you mentioned that romance isn't always a fairy tale. More often, it's about actively deciding to be together. And I think mm. that in itself is both so realistic and romantic at the same time. <laughs> so conscious, you know, conscious coupling. <laughs> yeah, conscious coupling, right. It's a mature way of looking at relationships. It's a mature way of looking at love. It's not what we're brainwashed to think, you know, growing up pop culture almost and, and almost universally shows uh, love as a, an emotional connection that you just either it's right or it's wrong. You know, the, the two characters get together at the end and they live happily ever after. And then in real life, you know, more than half of marriages end in divorce. And, and we say that also as though that's always necessarily a bad thing. And, and sometimes people getting divorces is the best thing for their families, you know. But the point is that I do think that relationships are mostly about making active choices for each other and for the relationship. And that, you know, you mentioned asynchronous relationships. <laughs> uh, that's a big deal, right? That happens yeah. all the time where two people aren't quite aligned and it might not work out because of circumstances. Um, and then things just line up or they don't line up, you know. Um, I have a lot, I have, I have friends who are single now where had they made a different choice, they might be not single. I have people who are not who are married who 
could have just as easily remained single. And, you know, all these things, there's no right path. It's all very um, serendipitous. The whole thing is serendipity on top of making the best decisions you can. How does that tie to your profession as well? I mean, the business of psychiatry is in part also very serendipitous. Yeah, you're right about that. Serendipity is all around us, right? It's the chaos of the universe turned into something uh, that sometimes can can bring great joy and, and um, sometimes can bring great sorrow. And, and, you know, that's really the work of a psychiatrist is working with people around their inner worlds, their inner experiences of all of that chaos, right, all around them. So I, I think it is part of the profession is is sort of being comfortable in the uncertainty of everything that happens to us. Have you ever encountered a case that you've not been able to impact in some way? I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, if some people believe that, that they can never be helped, and I don't believe that. I think that there's always a way to help, to improve. Yeah, I think I, there have been lots, lots and lots of cases where I have felt my own sense of disappointment of, you know, I'm not doing enough or I wish I were a better psychiatrist so I could think of a better solution to help this person forward. There have been times when I thought I was doing everything right and the patient probably thought I wasn't, you know, doing enough. I'm sure I'm positive that that happens sometimes. I think it's, there's also something to this idea. I, I almost, the analogy that's popping into my head is almost like the, the gravity of a black hole where the closer you get to it, the more intense the gravity is going to be felt. So if someone is experiencing the despair of a severe depression, let's say, and they're in it, right, they're experiencing it. They might say, there's nothing you can do, uh, Dr. Stern, to help me. I've taken all the medications. I've done all the different therapies. What are you going to do that's going to help me? Um, but what they might not know that I might know is is that I've seen people right where they are and I've seen them get better and and I've seen them... Uh, find ways of getting better over time with different approaches. So I think that, you know, a lot of mental health, when it goes wrong, is that, you know, it's like that black hole, that gravity that is almost inescapable, inescapable in the moment. It feels like, like there's no, nothing can uh, get beyond. Uh, but from a psychiatrist, you're looking at it from afar. Yeah. And I think there might be something to that, that, you know, if you just, I'll hold the hope for now. If you stay with me on this, I, I'm, I'm telling you that somewhere down the road, things will probably get better for you. So you're, you're the hope holder, the space holder. When the patient can't hold that for themselves, that's part of your role. I mean, that's what I'm hearing you say. I think so. And I actually do say that to some patients when they're not feeling when they feel like it is hopeless, I do say that. I'm going to hold the hope for right now because I've seen people get better from here. And, you know, very often it's enough. Just hearing that lets them get to the next step, to the next step, to the next step. And eventually most people will either improve or come to terms with not improving in a different way. Uh, that despair is is something that is transient, just the way that elation is transient, right? Yes. You can't bottle up and feel <laughs> elation all the time. Despair is, is a lot like that too, in some ways. Yeah. I'm really thinking about what, what you're saying is that it really, that no matter what emotion we are feeling, that it is all very temporary too. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's fleeting. 
the, mm-hmm. the happiness, the unhappiness. For some of us, the that misery or difficulty or suffering will last longer than for others, but just the nature of life itself is cyclical. Yep. I totally agree. Which gives which gives hope. You know, compounded with the approach that you share, which is so warm and inviting and connected that if we all had doctors like you, we would probably all be super healthy <laughs> in every way. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. I I think I'm still trying to get better, you know. I really am. I think that the more I do this, the more humble I am about what I don't know and, and how much I need to, you know, be open to improving. And I think that's true. If you find a doctor with that attitude, I'll, I'll say that's the best kind of doctor, someone who's always looking to to try to connect better with their patients. But, you know, I think the secret sauce, which goes back to the listening, which is about sort of that loving approach that you have, that my guess is that your approach to the world is through this lens of loving kindness. And that is part of the hook or part of the magic of what you do and how you reach your patients and the students that you teach. I think that's that's fair. With students in particular, I try very much to convey, this is a good profession. We're trying to do good here and we're trying to do it in the most humane and really, frankly, human way possible. And if I get just that idea across, even if someone's going into surgery, if it's a med student and they're not going into psychiatry, but they're going into something totally unrelated, even just that idea, I feel like I've done a good job teaching them that day. Well, keep teaching. Keep coming back to hang out with me. I love talking with you. I love the time that we get to share. I love the way you show up here. So you make me happy. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure. My guest today has been Dr. Adam Stern. We're talking about his book, Committed, Dispatches from a Psychiatrist in Training. To learn more, go to adamsternmd.com, on Twitter at Adam Philip Stern, and on Instagram, Adam Stern MD. Thanks again. Thank you. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We're back continuing the conversation about medical journeys, kinder doctors, and resilient patients. My next guest is David Richmond. He is an author, public speaker, and endurance athlete whose mission is to form more meaningful human connections through storytelling. His first book, Winning in the Middle of the Pack, discussed how to get more out of ourselves than we've ever imagined. With Cycle of Lives, which is the book we're talking about today, David shares stories of people overcoming trauma and delves deeply into their emotional journeys with cancer. David continues to do Ironman triathlons and recently completed a solo 4,700-mile bike ride. But he's in the house today, David, to talk about Cycles of Lives, 15 people's stories, 5,000 miles, and a journey through the emotional chaos of cancer. Welcome, David. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate the uh, intro and glad to sit down and talk with you. I am thrilled to have you here because as I explained to you before we started recording this interview, one of the first interviews that I ever did on Harvesting Happiness, which is nearly 13 years ago, and it's really emblazoned in my memory, 
is with a man who had cancer and said on the show that having cancer was the best thing that ever happened to him. And it was a remarkable moment, an indelible memory. And I think you know exactly what he meant. Yeah, it, it's it's strange, right? Some people live as a result of their cancer, you know, once they have it. And, and I'm not talking about just having cancer, you know, loved ones, survivors, you know, doctors, you know, research researchers, they, they, they're all dealing with the emotional side of things. But some people live as a result of it. And some people live in spite of it. Right. And, and I love it when somebody pivots and transforms into a totally different avenue of their life because of some kind of trauma that some people succumb to the emotional side of it. Some people use it as a springboard to a new and more fulfilling existence. And sounds like, sounds like he did. I, I know some people that have done that and it's really inspiring. I mean, it's, it's like, wow, could, could I do that? Would I, would I have done that? Or would I have just hidden a corner and, 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 uh, licked my wounds, you know? Well, let's talk about the power of story because everybody's got one and you've got an interesting one. And I'd love for you to share your journey, I think it's been a 20-year journey that brought you here and to Cycle of Lives. Yeah. So what happened, Lisa, and and appreciate that, is that I'm in my late 30s, I'm completely stressed out. I'm pretty successful in business, but I'm not successful in any other part of my life. I'm, I'm married to an abusive alcoholic. Uh, I'm overweight. I'm a smoker. Um, I'm, I'm completely stressed out. I'm you know, I'm creating problems that I need to try to fix that I can't fix. And, you know, I, I, all I care about is whatever other people think of me. And, I'm, I'm, you know, it's just I'm just not living a purposeful heads up. How am I interacting with the world kind of life? And when, when I was in my late 30s, I had a friend, you know, you hear something 100 times, but it doesn't make sense until you finally hear it the right way. And I had a friend uh, say something to me and he's like, dude, I'm tired of you complaining. <laughs> about the bad things in your life he goes because i mean honestly you're the problem he's like yes here, yeah here's what you do he goes this is you david you go find a bunch of wild rabid dogs and then you try to pet it and it bites you and you try to figure out why and then you get rabies and you die and you move on to the next dog and the next problem and i'm like wow he goes why do you keep doing that i'm like yeah you know what you're right i do like maybe i am the problem and meanwhile i was always getting mad at the dog right well the dog doesn't know any better the dog's just gonna bite you it's a problem like why are you trying to fix it and so maybe i had to be the problem so i i kind of took this deep breath i took a very long look in the mirror um and, and i i mean really like fig not figuratively actually stood in front of the mirror and, and ask myself a ton of questions saying, who the heck are you and where are you and who do you want to be and what's your problems and what's your good points and whatever. And I came up with this idea that I got this huge journey ahead of me. If I start to live on purpose, if I like pay attention to me, if I put my head up rather than keep it down and plow through, if I, if I kind of understand how to interact with the world in a, in a more meaningful way, like I got this big journey ahead of me. And that started me down a road of of, of transformation, mostly through like endurance athletics, um, and, and learning how to connect to the world and apply all these hard lessons that I learned to myself rather, rather than to, to, you know, to, to learn the lessons, but never apply them. When we talk about endurance athletics, you're talking about dozens of Ironmans, 
mm-hmm. countless 50 plus mile rides. And then you had this solo bike ride that was nearly 5,000 miles. I'd love for you to talk, just kind of hone in on that five mile, 5,000 mile ride, because that's kind of off the charts. <laughs> it's a little bit off the charts. It, you know, it took a while to get there and I certainly didn't, um, set out to say, Oh, that's my goal. And here's what I'm going to do. It's just, you know, when you start doing something like that, whatever it is, something creative, something athletic, something fulfilling, whatever that you've never done before can be pretty exciting. And then you go, well, if I can do, you know, a 5k, why not a half marathon? If I could do a half marathon, why not run 50 miles? Well, heck, if I can run 50 miles, why not run a hundred miles? Like that's the way my, my brain worked that I just never, I never thought like there was a goal. It was just like, oh, hey, if you can do it, just do it. And at the same time, Lisa, that I was going through this transformation and having this big, long road of discovery ahead of me, um, uh, uh, at the same time, my sister, who I was super close to, uh, was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. Oh, God. Uh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Oh, I know. It stinks. And so um, here I am like living this dichotomous existence of recognizing that I've got this long pathway of discovery and learning and fulfillment, hopefully ahead of me now that I can rewire my brain and, you know, try to try to act purposefully and with meaning. And here she is and she's living a great life, good husband, kids, great friends, you know, all this. And and she's down a path that's going to be, you know, to her certain death. And so it just was really stark and, and made me pay attention to her journey and her experience and her interaction with the world and with people around her. And I recognized that, you know, what we talked about a little bit before is, is that, is that um, people are not really well equipped to deal with the emotions of their trauma, especially of cancer. Um, and, you know, we need to talk about those kind of things more and people aren't equipped to talk about them. And so I decided to go, uh, on this journey to find a bunch of people that would be willing to talk about it that had evocative, inspiring stories. I interviewed them for a couple of years, Lisa, and then I said exactly what you just said. Uh, we're connected by story, right? Who who doesn't lean in when you go, yeah. I got a story for you. Who goes, nah, I don't have time. Yeah, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> so um, so I, I, I thought if we're connected by emotion and we're connected by story, what better way to connect the, the stories of the people I'd interviewed for a couple of years than to jump on my bike and kind of make a line connecting the story. So I zigzagged across the country and from California to Florida and then up to New York to meet with the people and meet others along the way in cancer centers and hospitals and whatever um, to kind of connect all of the stories and this idea of, uh, of how do we better talk uh, through the hard aspects of trauma, like the emotions of cancer. This is, this is fantastic. And this is like the, the story of the story is great because you are the conduit. You are creating this space for people to really go deep about their cancer experiences in a way that they might not normally have felt comfortable doing so. Oh, without question. And I went into it hoping that that would be the case. But when I got into it, it was amazing because an example, Lisa, would be like I had interviewed a oncologist at NYU and Pearl Mutter's Cancer Institute at NYU. And 
uh, she was just celebrating, had just celebrated 40 years as an oncologist when I started talking to her. And I said to her, I go, Lisa, I go, hey, doc, um, can we talk about things like you've never talked to your peers about? She goes, I'm a woman doctor. I don't talk to my peers about the emotions. And I'm like, oh, okay. I go, what, what about your friend group? And she goes, you know, my friends are all professionals like me and we all have our problems. We go hiking. We go to a museum. We have lunch. We don't talk about our problems. Wow. And I go, your husband? And she goes, well, yeah, not really. I go, well, who have you talked to about this stuff? And she goes, yeah, not anybody ever. And I thought to myself, like, how does a woman, how does any doctor go from patient room A, where they've got to tell a woman that's bouncing two kids on her lap that uh, she's going to be fine and follow this treatment protocol and everything's going to be good. And maybe that woman says, no, nah, I'm not really interested in following your protocol. I'll just start eating vegan. But thanks anyway. See you later. And then she's like, man, I, I could really help her. And she's got to walk to patient room B where she's got a 25-year-old woman bouncing two kids on her knees that's not going to live very long. And and how, how do you deal with the emotions of that? And um, and we went so deep. And with everyone I spoke to, Lisa, every single person said, geez, you know, I've never really talked about that. So getting deep, getting a really deep, deep, hard look into their traumas, into their life, allowed me to shine a light on the human experience in a way we often don't get to. Because like what you just said, Lisa, yeah, everybody's got a story. Well, beyond that, we don't know what the heck people have gone through or what they are going through. And if we had a little bit more insight into that, it might let us connect with them in a deeper, more authentic, um, you know, real way. So that's what I set out to do. And, you know, the often the underlooked um, victims of cancer are the caregivers, you know, and the, the, the compassion fatigue that our family members experience when they are the caregivers, the the space holders, the lay practitioners who help their loved ones through these monumental medical crises. Mm. Uh, yeah. I, I, one of the uh, uh, notes I was saying earlier, I love getting little notes and people can connect with me directly. And I love it when they send me a note. I got a note from a woman who read the book and she said, oh my God, well, because there's two or three doctors in there and a, and a pediatric oncology nurse in there. And she said, it made me think like for a minute, like I'm always going in wor worrying about myself. And she sent me this note saying, my doctor came in and he looked unbelievably troubled. And when he started to talk to me, I go, wait a second, before you get to me, like what's going on? You look troubled. How are you doing? And the guy literally broke down and didn't know how to handle the fact that this woman cared about him. And she caught him at the right time when he could open up for a couple of minutes and they bonded in a way that was kind of unbelievable. And she sent me this note and she goes, I I'm so happy that I was able to connect with my doctor as a human. Like he needed it. What a great thing. Yeah. So, and that's medicine. I mean, I think if this is a form of medicine that uh, doesn't come on a prescription pad, you know, it's not chemical, you know, it's, it's very, <laughs> very human. And it's the it's the talking and space holding for one another that I believe your book cycle of lives, um, you know, pays homage to. Yeah, and it was a real um, privilege for me to be able to do that. Not everyone I talked, Lisa, you talked to tons of people. You do a lot of work with with really he heavy things. N not everyone is able to to express what's inside. Not a not yeah. everybody's able to feel safe or 
navigate the hallways of their traumas. Not everybody's able to do that and vice versa. If they are able, maybe, you know, you're not the person to do it with them. So uh, it, it took a while before I could find the right group of people that I felt gave a pretty 360 view of the emotional side of trauma, you know, from different ages, different types of cancer, different emotional responses, you know, um, a caregiver, professionals, you know, secondary trauma, you know, all of this stuff. And it took a while to do that. But I think through these stories, I feel like, you know, cycle of lives, give it another uh, play on words. If, if a cycle is a wheel and that wheel is divided up into all the sections, I think we kind of hit every section. Let's take a break. When we come back, we will continue the conversation with my guest today, David Richman. We're talking about cycle of lives, 15 people's stories, 5,000 miles, and a journey through the emotional chaos of cancer. To learn more, please visit cycleoflives.org. You can find David via Cycle of Lives on Facebook and Instagram. Facebook is Cycle of Lives, and on Instagram, David Richmond underscore Cycle of Lives. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. We're back continuing the conversation about medical journeys, kinder doctors, and resilient patients. Let's get back to it. So, David, you were talking about the the stories of the 15 people, the people that you actually sat down and interviewed, and the impact that cancer had on them individually, their family systems, their their professions as as doctors. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk about your career as a writer. And then how you have taken that and are teaching others how to access their inner author. Mm. Yeah. So I love writing. It doesn't matter if it's fiction, nonfiction, you know, from trying to be prescriptive or just descriptive, right? Either way, it doesn't matter. Like I love it all. And one of the side benefits of this um, project that I went on and, 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 you know, we're talking years I I talked to you know, hundreds and hundreds of people, is that uh, I I knew what maybe a lot of your listeners might have learned in college or whatever, but I it took me it takes me a while to learn sometimes that the conversations that we have with ourselves in our heads is way different than the conversations we have with others or even to ourselves if we can have a different way of conversing through journaling, through expressive writing, uh, or or through sharing in a peer group or whatever. And boy, oh boy, I'll tell you, Lisa, I what the transformation and the weight that was lifted off of people being able to talk about whatever it was, and every single person said, "Yeah, never really talked about that." Yeah, 
right? Oh, yeah, we can talk about it, but gosh, I won't even know where to start. I've never, ever talked about it. And I thought to myself, how great is it, is it that we both have a space where I can be enlightened by their story and they can feel safe enough to, um, to talk about things verbally that they've never talked about except for in their inside head. And so now, uh, as one of the things I do, I do a lot of things, but one of the things I do is expressive writing workshops. And I kind of bring the tenets of traditional expressive writing, which is kind of journaling between you, the paper, and then the paper shredder, right? You know, it's just, it's just, (laughs) right. Um, and then I, I bring in some tenets of, of narrative and creative writing so that when we do this expressive writing for ourselves, um, and, and hear things in a new way, not, not our inside voice, but a, a new way, um, that it, that it re helps us reconnect with ourselves. It helps us rewire the way we talk to ourselves because we certainly are a heck of a lot meaner and less tolerant of our inside selves than we are if we heard, if we heard the way we talk to ourselves or the way we feel about things. And they're unbelievably transformative, phenomenal workshops you know, there's proven health benefits to expressive writing. And I just, um, I, I feel grateful that I get to work with a lot of different type of organizations uh, in giving these expressive writing workshops and series of workshops to really help people redefine that inside voice and make it a little bit kinder. And <laughs> expressive writing is not therapy. However, it is almost always therapeutic. Yeah, exactly. Well said. It's more self-care. So. Yeah. It, it uh, the example I like to give Lisa is this. Okay, when you uh, um, when you accidentally say something um, to somebody that you know, ah, as soon as I said it, it 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 was the wrong thing to say, but you didn't mean to, right? It's just, oh my gosh, I wish I would have said something different. And then for the next five minutes, and if it's a really important person, maybe for the next five years, you kind of go, what the heck? You're such an idiot. I know you didn't mean it, but golly, man, like, what the heck are you doing? Like, you're a terrible friend. And you have this inside voice, right? And I like to think about if you could have uh, your friend's seven-year-old daughter who happened to just accidentally say something that she knew, oh, it was the wrong thing to say. Would you lean over and go, you know, you're such an idiot. How could you be so heartless? How could you even accidentally say something that would be so – you would never talk to another person right. the way you talk to yourself. <laughs> so and, true. And it's so true, right? And so when you hear how you feel about it in a voice that's other than that inside voice that can be quite critical and pretty harsh and unforgiving, when you hear yourself talk about it in a way, when you write it down, when you read it, uh, it really can can uh, help you develop some self care, some compassion, and and some healing. Again, not not therapy, but just a new way to hear the way that you talk to yourself is is really great. When you think about the similarities in people's stories, what are the revelations to you and to the reader? Well, the revelation I think to the reader is what what we been talking about a little bit about you never know what people have gone through or what they are going through and it's amazing to know that man we're not alone like the traumas that we have had in our childhood in our young adulthood in our adolescent kind of everybody has had those it might not be our traumas might be theirs but we often kind of like look at somebody's story and we go oh my god like there's no way i could ever get through that 
Meanwhile, they're just living their lives because that's what they know. And they're looking at us going, oh, my God, I can't imagine what Lisa's dealing with. I could never deal with that. Right. Because you're just living your life. It's right. You. And what's amazing is I think the reader understands that everybody's going through something. Everybody's dealing with trauma, sometimes in a better way, in a healthier way than others, and sometimes not. But the stories are very inspirational. They're very evocative and, and allow us to connect with the human experience and then to say, well, geez, you know, if I lose the love of my life, like how could I then go on to find the love of my life? How could I find gratitude in difficulty? How can I learn to uh, put into perspective um, uh, my issues and, you know, how can I learn to better connect with people around me? How can I open up? How can I not self-isolate when I'm going through something difficult? So I think that um, just the identity that we have to these people, because we're so deep into their stories that we got to find a touch point where we go, yeah, I get that now. And what emerges from these portraits, these portraits through words, is, you know, resilience, courage, inner strength, strength of heart, persistence, the fight for not just life, but a good life. And I think we can all relate to that on one level or another, because it is the basis of the human experience. Yeah. And, and look, Lisa, I, I know you do. I do. And I don't know you, but I'm speaking for you right now. Please I, I'm, do. <laughs> I'm going to speak for everybody listening right now. There's absolutely a time in your life, if it didn't happen today already, or maybe this week, where somebody told you or you saw somebody that somebody's going through something difficult and you haven't thought like, I don't know what the hell to say. Like, yeah. I don't know what to say. What do you say to somebody that's like, who doesn't feel that way? And when you're going through difficulty and you feel alone and abandoned or you don't know how to reach out to people and maybe there's some people that have a sense of what you're going through, you know what they're thinking? What the hell do I say to Lisa? Like, I have no idea. Like, ah. And so trauma, difficulty can be very, very lonely place because we don't know what to say to each other. What I'm hoping is that this book gives people a couple of more tools to go, oh, maybe I should try to do this. Because I want to connect with Lisa in a different way. I got I to gotta try to find out what's going on. And I'm not going to be afraid to say the wrong thing. Maybe I can do this. And, and although I don't preach and it's not prescriptive telling people what to do, but I think we can just identify with these stories and, and or at least some aspects of the story so that we can you know connect with people when they're going through difficulty. I think even telling somebody, you know, if you can't relate to their experience directly, that you're just willing to be there with them. I'm sorry you're going through this hardship and I'm here with you. You know, I might not know exactly what to say, but you're not alone. That in of itself is a gift. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, uh, we're really good at, say, dropping off a casserole when somebody's going through something, but to uh, to ring the doorbell with open arms and empty hands and yeah. say, here to sit with you. That's, that's hard. It's that, a big it's gift, hard, you know? And so, so yeah, that, that's, that's exactly kind of what we need to do. And, and again, um, easier said than done, but oftentimes, uh, saying nothing is the exact opposite of saying the wrong thing. Cause saying the wrong thing means at least you're trying. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And you're willing to risk, you're willing yeah. to risk being wrong or maybe embarrassing yourself, but at least you stepped out there and you try, you know, you show up for the other person and we need a lot more of that around here to show up for each other. Yeah. Let me tell you a super quick story. So I learned like, don't, don't like, it's okay to talk. It's okay to ask questions. You can be stupid, whatever. It doesn't matter. Right. So 
So instead of like this woman that I was doing expressive writing workshop with several months ago, um, she had told me that she had just lost her mom. And instead of going, oh, I'm sorry to hear that, I go, oh my gosh, I go, I go, that must be tough. Were you close? And she goes, oh my God, it's the greatest day of my life. I hated her. Ah. And I'm like, oh, that's great. Because if I would have just went, oh, I'm sorry. And then shut, shut down the conversation. She would have walked away going, man, this guy is a jerk. What is he? What is he sorry about? I hated my mom, <laughs> you know, and it's it's it was it was a good learning lesson that, man, people are living their lives. Man, if you want to connect, connect in a in a meaningful, authentic way. <laughs> Ask questions. and be I want to also mention that proceeds from Cycle of Lives go to a nonprofit. Talk a little bit about that. We're nearly out of time, so I want to give a plug for that. I'll be super quick. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Uh, when I was interviewing people, I found that each one had an affinity for an organization, you know, Moffitt Cancer Center, American uh, Cancer Society, you name it, whatever, Children's Hospital LA. And I said, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we just give all the proceeds, divide it up between the, the charities that you guys pick? So each one of the participants picked a, a, um, a an organization that they're that they're committed to. And they're listed in the book. They're listed on my website. And and 100% of the proceeds that come to me from the book go out. And um, I'm very happy to do it. Well, I'm very happy to have you share your story with our listeners and to promote your book, Cycle of Lives, 15 People's Stories, 5,000 Miles, and a Journey Through the Emotional Chaos of Cancer. My guest today has been David Richmond. You can find him at cycleoflives.org on Facebook at Cycle of Lives, and on Instagram, David Richmond underscore Cycle of Lives. Thanks, David. Oh, you're so welcome. I totally enjoyed talking to you, Lisa. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guests, Dr. Adam Stern and David Richmond, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.